I will not be voting for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. So Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin told Politico's Tim Alberta in an eye-catching article that ran last week that foreshadowed what many see as the coming civil war within the Democratic Party. Slotkin, a former CIA analyst, is among a small and influential band of moderates chastened by the results of this month's election, during which, despite Joe Biden's victory, Republicans actually made significant gains in the House, shrinking the Democratic majority to perhaps a handful of seats. For moderates like Slotkin, the party needs new leadership and to push back harder on some of the policies being advocated by hardcore progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We'll talk to Alberta about the tensions within the Democratic Party and the equally unsettled landscape for Republicans in the post-Trump era on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, as if on cue, just as we were taping this podcast, Biden, of course, announces his new White House leadership team, a number of uh, old staffers who've been with him for years, but also named Congressman Cedric Richmond as a senior counselor in the White House. And no sooner does he do so that a, um, a progressive group, the, the Sunrise Movement, puts out a, uh, a email, blast email, that uh, Richmond's hire is a betrayal due to his ties to big oil. He's gotten lots of fossil fuel money to his uh, campaigns uh, as a congressman and silence on pollution in his district. District. Today feels like a betrayal because one of President-elect Biden's very first hires has taken more donations from the fossil fuel industry during his congressional career than nearly any other Democrat, cozied up to big oil and gas and stayed silent and ignored meeting with organizations in his community while they suffered from toxic pollution. I'm just reading from the Sunrise Movement email there. And I think that pretty much shows what we're going to be headed for with this moderate progressive clash within the Democratic Party. Yeah, these tensions within the Democratic Party have been simmering uh, below the surface for a long time. What happened in the campaign, particularly uh, once Joe Biden, a moderate, fairly centrist Democrat, won the nomination, was that the progressive wing of the party and the moderate wing of the party came together to defeat a common enemy and were more united, you know, ironically, than I think we've seen the party in a long time because there was such a sense of existential dread here that, uh, you know, if Donald Trump was reelected, that would be in some ways the end of America as we as we know it. Well, now Joe Biden has won the election and the progressives, I think, feel like they now have earned their due having helped Joe Biden win that victory. But Democrats don't 
a lot of centrist Democrats don't see it the same way because they either got beaten in in House races and Senate races or came very close to getting beaten. And so in Politico and in the pages of the New York Times, this warfare literally hours after the results came in started to uh, break out. Um, and um, I think it's a, a glimpse of uh, what we're going to see going forward. Yeah, no, I think it could get really nasty as this thing uh, unfolds. But of course, Republicans have their own problems, too, in navigating a post-Trump era where Trumpism uh, remains strong within the party. And you see that by the sort of you know, reluctance of senior Republicans to admit the obvious that Joe Biden won the election because they don't want to risk offending the hardcore Trump base, which is pretty sizable. So look, we've got uh, nobody better to talk about this than Tim Alberta. He is one of the smartest political writers around. Uh, He uh, spent a lot of time with Slotkin for that piece in Politico that we'll be talking about, but he can broaden it to the um, uh, the tensions within both parties. And, so, and one thing just really quickly about sure. Alberta that I love, which is, is that he, he left Washington. He moved to Michigan, uh, where he is has been living for the last year, where, of course, Alyssa Slotkin is from, but he's been spending all this time talking to voters on the ground, Trump voters, um, Democratic voters, and not just going out and, you know, doing the sort of usual talk to a bunch of voters uh, for your story. He's been living among them, living with them. And uh, that, um, I think, brings a lot of value to his reporting and insights, which we will uh, hear in just a second on the podcast. So let's get to it. We now have with us Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico, author of the book American Carnage, and also uh, the writer of a fascinating piece that came out just after the election about Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, a leading House moderate, and the coming civil war within the Democratic Party. Tim, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me back, guys. Good to, good to see you. So it strikes me and a lot of people that there's a re-scrambled political dynamic in this country uh, in the aftermath of the election, both among Democrats, particularly in the House, where there's this looming civil war between the progressives and the moderates, but also among Republicans uh, in the post-Trump era. That's challenging a lot of the assumptions uh, we all had going into this election. Give us, Tim, your sort of broad brush take. Yeah, look, I think we have to just start with this baseline recognition that, you know, politics are now so asymmetrical and the institutions, and it's important to recognize, like, you know, the parties themselves are institutions, right? The Republican Party is an institution. The Democratic Party is an institution. We have seen these institutions, like every other institution in American life, be gradually weakened over the last several decades. And obviously on the Republican side, that ultimately manifested in the nomination of Donald Trump and his takeover of the Republican Party. I think we have paid a little bit less attention to what's happened on the Democratic side since Obama left office, in part 
because after the initial volleys were fired in that Democratic Civil War between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and then you saw a little bit more of it in 2018 with AOC taking down Joe Crowley and the emergence of the squad, as they call themselves. The reason that it sort of hit a lull for a little while there, guys, I believe, is because there was a, a consensus, or pretty close to a consensus, inside the Democratic Party that for any of their ideological differences, the all-consuming overriding priority was to defeat Donald Trump. And that's why I think you saw in 2020, one of the tamest presidential primaries in, in modern history on the Democratic side. There was very little blood spilled. It was not a protracted affair. The remainder of the field dropped out and rallied around, consolidated around Joe Biden in incredibly short order, you know, relative to other presidential primaries that we've lived through. And so what you saw among not just the elected class, but I think among a, a pretty significant portion of the Democratic grassroots and in the base was a, a willingness to sort of lay down their swords in the short term because they believed they bought into this idea that Joe Biden was the most electable candidate and that he did stand the best chance of defeating Trump and that that was so important that they weren't going to let their other differences get in the way of that. That having been said, there was, I think, always an understanding that, you know, come November 4th, win, lose, or draw, that those differences were going to come, you know, spilling right back out into the open and, and probably be more pronounced than ever before. And, and sure enough, that's what we saw. So I don't think it's surprising in that, in that sense. I think it is maybe a little bit surprising just how, sort, just how, just how vigorous some of these actors have been on, on both sides of it in making their case and really in wasting no time sort of pointing a finger at the other side. Tim, as I, I think you're suggesting, it's a lot easier to unify the party uh, during a campaign than it is than when you then have to govern. So how do you see this playing out? And, and talk about your uh, profile of Slotkin, which I think in real time, um, you know, it's a terrific read. You know, you sort of see, you see the the cracks in in that unity opening up. Of course, we saw it spill onto the pages of the New York Times as well, with an argument between AOC and uh, moderates like uh, Connor Lamb in, in Pennsylvania. How is this going to play out over, over the coming months? And I guess the larger question is, in some ways, aren't both sides right? Yeah. So, so I'll take that second part quickly. It's yes. Here's the funny thing, and and I tried to get at some of this nuance in the piece that you're referencing. You know, at the end of the day, AOC and Alyssa Slotkin don't agree on a whole lot uh, ideologically, but I think sort of strategically, they have some of the same complaints about the House Democratic leadership. They feel like they are sort of condescended to and that they are patronized and that the Democratic leadership, this old guard of the party, uh, sort of always believes that they know what's best. And yeah, whether, the funny thing is, whether you asked AOC or Alyssa Slotkin this question, they would probably give you the same answer. The question being, you know, do you think that we should have a wide open process on the House floor? Should we allow for the, an amendment process to work from the ground up and, and just have a, sort of a free-for-all and let the House work its will and let people take votes the way that they're supposedly elected to take votes? They, on procedural grounds, they would both say absolutely. Now, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on that, but it's a really important thing. And this is, these are similar to the complaints because there, there is a great deal of, of symmetry here, guys. These are very eerily similar to the complaints that eventually led to the ouster of John Boehner and also eventually led to Paul Ryan sort of getting run out of town by some of the conservatives in his conference. There's been, I think, a lot of pent-up 
frustration among some of the newcomers to Congress in recent years, people who span the ideological spectrum, who believe that the place doesn't work, and that actually, for as well-intentioned as the leadership has been, that they are actually making the polarization worse by attempting to sort of suffocate a lot of these big public policy debates that, you know, Alyssa Slotkin doesn't want the Green New Deal, but she wants to have a debate about it on the House floor. She thinks that that's a good thing. She thinks that it would help clarify what the party stands for and what it doesn't stand for. But by not allowing some of these debates to be had out in the open, there is a sense among Democrats from the far left to the center left that they are sort of muddying the party's brand and that ultimately nobody walks away satisfied. Nobody knows what the party stands for. But Tim, let me just one one quick follow up, because it, it seems like what Slotkin is saying is a little more nuanced than what we're hearing from the Connor Lambs and the Abigail Spanbergs, because they're saying the Democratic messaging was terrible for all of us moderates. And all the, you know, all the political reporters are writing about AOC and and the squad uh, because it makes good copy. But we don't want to hear everyone talking about socialism and defund the police and the Green New Deal. That's not good for our brand. Isn't that true? No, that's absolutely right. And I think, again, that's actually exactly in keeping with what I was just saying. Essentially, think of this as a vacuum, right? Democrats believe that by virtue of running for the last four years essentially against Donald Trump, but not for much of anything, that there has been a vacuum created where when people start shouting socialism or people start shouting defund the police, then those ideas, those mantras, those sentiments suddenly fill the vacuum very quickly and they become the sort of de facto brand, at least perception is reality in the minds of a lot of voters. That's that's what people like Slotkin and Spanberger are upset about. And they believe that if you had these debates out in the open and had them transparently, then that would actually show that the, this, that the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is not nearly as far left as some people would believe it is. So I was really struck by the quote from Slack, and you have all the way down in the piece saying, I will not be voting for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. So what should we make of that? And right now, is there going to be a challenge to Pelosi? Is it going to be coming from the moderate? It's like Slotkin, or is it going to be coming from, you know, others in the Democratic Party? I mean, what's the basis for the discontent with Pelosi right now? And how far does it go? Well, look, here, here's the bottom line, Dave. It, you can still never beat something with nothing. And that was the problem. Listen, I've witnessed three attempted coups against speakers, two against Boehner, one against Ryan. At the end of the day, people can bitch and moan and they can voice their disillusionment and their anger and their frustration. But if you don't have a viable alternative, then it's all academic. It, it ultimately doesn't matter. That's the advantage Pelosi has at this point. She has been masterful at keeping at bay anyone with credibility in her caucus who might think about rising up and challenging her. Any senior Democrat, anybody who's been around long enough to sort of earn some goodwill and collect some favors, somebody of of real credibility and stature in the caucus who could mount a, a real challenge to her, they're almost surely not going to do it in part Because two years ago, she signed on to this sort of informal handshake agreement, essentially, where she said that she would only serve four more years as speaker. So if that agreement is to be believed, 
then the people in her caucus know that this is her last term as speaker if, if she's in fact reelected to the position. So Alyssa Slotkin is going to vote against Pelosi and you're probably gonna have a handful of other discontented moderates who are going to vote against Pelosi. But ultimately, even though she's working with a smaller margin for error due to some Republican gains in the House of Representatives, I've just seen this movie too many times, guys, and, and you just see how it ends. Unless somebody real and credible steps up to run against her, I find it very hard to see how, how she's not coming back as speaker. Let, let me just pick up on that. You said some Republican gains. I think, you know, there were actually pretty substantial Republican gains that nobody saw coming. You know, it could be as many as 10 or 12, which uh, puts uh, Pelosi's majority down to like a handful. And that's that's something, as I said, that nobody saw coming, uh, wasn't predicted by anybody, and I think really threw a lot of people for a loop. So what's your analysis of how and why that happened? So it's interesting, guys. This piece that we've been talking about with Slotkin was actually the finale to a series I did on her, and I've spent uh, a lot of time with her the last six months. The very first piece in that series, we published it back in, I want to say June, and that very first piece, the headline of it was something like, Alyssa Slotkin is sounding the alarm. Will Democrats listen to her? And in that piece, Slotkin represents this very interesting district in Michigan. It stretches from the wealthy, affluent suburbs of uh, north of Detroit all the way west through some very conservative portions of this sort of exurban Detroit, uh, Ann Arbor area, all the way out to the capital city of Lansing with some pretty poor neighborhoods. So she has everything, black, white, and Hispanic, uh, wealthy and poor, rural and urban and suburban and exurban. She's got a really good feel for all of it. And she spends a lot of time on the ground. She's very diligent. And she told me in our very first interview, she said, listen, I don't care what the polls are saying, I'm telling you, they're wrong again. I don't believe them. These polls, they are undercounting the Trump vote the same way that they did four years ago. And the funny thing is, when that piece came out, she got this enormous backlash from, from and so did I, from, you know, the, the wise men in the polling community. Oh, don't you know that we're weighting these things differently? Don't you know that our models have changed? It was very arrogant. And I've let a few of them know that in the, <laughs> the day since November 3rd. I actually think that this is not a terribly complicated answer to your question. There was a question for the past year, could Donald Trump in fact identify even more of these working class white conservatives who didn't vote for him in 2016 and could he bring them out in 2020? And I think the consensus on that question was no. There's no way that he basically had maxed out in 2016. But I gotta tell you, I. I've spent a lot of time on the ground. I live in Michigan. I've been in my truck driving across the Midwest for the last 13 months. And I have always had a sneaking suspicion that there were more of these voters. It was just a question of the margins and how many more. And that's what was most surprising to me is that there were a lot more of them and that Trump found them and turned them out in a way that nobody expected. Let me pick up on that, Tim, because I think that may relate to one of the arguments that Slotkin was making in your piece, uh, which is that Trump had a, had a way of tapping into these deep grievances that a lot of voters have. And I think what she was saying was the elites talk down to us and they treat us as if we don't, we're dumb or we don't understand what's going on. And that seemed to be almost a bottomless well for Trump. He was able to find more people because of that sense of, you know, being patronized. Um, do you think that is why because it, it did surprise everyone, I think, except for her, uh, that he was able to find so many more voters. I think, it was a, I think it was actually a big 
a big reason why. Look, sometimes, guys, we treat politics like it's brain surgery, and it's really not. If I've learned one thing in my career, it's that voters are not policy-oriented in the way that we think they maybe are. They are largely emotional creatures. If you were to lay down a blind policy test, a, a paper with uh, boxes to check for your average voter, particularly some of these working class white voters in the industrial Midwest that I, you know, they're my friends, my family, people I spend a lot of time with, I would be willing to bet that on eight out of 10 questions, they would align with the Democratic Party, right? But they do not feel like they are welcome in the Democratic Party, a lot of them. And that's what Slotkin was speaking to. The interesting thing is, I got a call from one of the smartest Democrats alive the day after the Slotkin piece published, uh, somebody who was instrumental in helping Obama get elected and, and who was kind of a wise man in the Democratic Party. And he said to me, look, this started really in earnest with Hillary in 2016. Hillary's campaign basically believed that by virtue of demographic change and demographic realignment in this country, that they did not need to bother courting a lot of these voters. They just didn't, they thought that they didn't need them. Uh, there's a reason she didn't bother going to Wisconsin and that instead she was going out to Arizona. There's a reason that she felt comfortable making these sort of paternalistic and, and, and kind of pejorative comments about, uh, you know, coal workers and everything else. Like, and, and obviously the comment about the deplorables, she believed and her campaign believed that it didn't matter that ultimately the numbers were so lopsided in their favor that they just didn't need to worry about losing those voters. And if we've learned anything in the last four or five years, it's that actually this isn't just about alienating some narrow slice of, you know, the white working class NASCAR voter. There are actually a lot of minority working class voters who are also put off by this, who also don't want to be told that because they are not sufficiently enlightened, that they don't have a seat at the table and that their vote isn't welcome in the Democratic Party. And this is a real issue. For, okay. For yes, I you're absolutely right. I hear you. We can see it in the numbers with uh, particularly black men and Latinos. On the other hand, and this goes to, I think, the divide between a, an AOC and, you know, say, a Connor Lamb, you know, you talked before and you talk in the piece about, you know, the Democratic message being muddled. Another way to look at it is the Democratic Party is in transition and there is a, a huge looming generational divide, because if you look at the, a lot of the polling coming out of this election, a lot of those issues that Connor Lamb didn't want to hear, Abigail Spanberg didn't want to hear, whether it's the Green New Deal or defund the police, those are resonating with a huge number of younger Democratic voters. So I guess the question and the challenge for Democrats is, and for someone like Slotkin, is how do you manage that transition over time? I mean, it's kind of like changing the wheels of a car while it's, you know, while it's driving on the highway. How do you do that? Daniel, that is well said, and it's, that's exactly the dilemma here, because at the end of the day, those demographic trajectories and that demographic realignment I was just referencing, it still is in the Democratic Party's favor big time over the long term, right? I mean, I, you know, when I worked at National Review in the 2016 campaign, I wrote a cover story for National Review magazine about how Republicans were screwed, not in the immediate term, but in the long term, and that Trump's exploits might actually give the party this sort of false sense of security in the short term that would prove really dangerous in the long term. So I actually think that it's sort of the inverse right now for the Democrats that a lot of the bedwetting they're doing right now might be 
we, they sort of might look back on it in 12, 16, 20 years and laugh at it and say, gosh, remember how worried we were about it. Right. They're not going to want to overlearn the lesson of 2020. That's exactly right. The, the most dangerous thing you can do in politics is overcorrect. But I do think that there's a there's a middle ground there that they have to be paying attention to, specifically if they want to hang out of the house in 2022, guys, because that's going to be a bear if these so if these same trend lines hold. So when I asked you about the Republican gains in the House, which, you know, right now they're up to 206 seats. These are the Republicans. And, and the way I look at it, they're they're ahead in about a half a dozen of the races that have not been called, which could bring them up to like 212. You know, 218 is is the majority. You put it all in the in terms of Trump bringing out voters. Was this all Trump for the Republican gains? Because in, in, if you look at the total number of House votes for House Republicans, it actually exceeds the number of votes for Trump. Yeah. Look, so, so the interesting thing about this election was, and it's a bit self-contradictory as you know, politics often is. This isn't you know, straight line stuff usually. What was interesting is that you didn't see a, a ton of ticket splitting at least maybe not as much as you would have expected, right? Uh, like in Michigan, for instance, there was a universal expectation that John James, the Republican Senate nominee here, who is a kind of a highly pedigreed, highly touted candidate, that he had a real shot at beating the incumbent, Gary Peters, who, who's kind of a low profile Democrat. And the expectation was that John James was going to run like one to three points ahead of Donald Trump. And if he did that, then he might have a chance, depending on how close it was. Now, as it turns out, it was very close. And, and Donald Trump loses Michigan by 146,000 votes, give or take. But John James actually won fewer raw votes than Donald Trump did in the state, which was very surprising to a lot of people here. So on the one hand, there was sort of this sense that, well, maybe all politics is national now, uh, contra Tip O'Neill. Maybe, maybe you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden and the sort of image and the perception of the national parties is actually really informing the bottom of the ticket much more than, uh, than we'd ever seen before. On the other hand, in specific pockets of the country, particularly in suburban-based districts, you did see Republicans run much more competitively than Trump ran, which tells you that in some of those specific areas, there was a lot of ticket splitting. Uh, and at the very least, that some of these voters, guys, who we've spent the last two years declaring as dead to the Republican Party, people who had gone purple in 2018 and now who are going to be blue in 2020 and they were never going to look back on the Republican roots, I think we were overstating it. I think a lot of these suburban moderates, as much as they can't stand Trump, and this gets to Spanberger's point and Lamb's point, as much as they can't stand Trump, the thought of defunding the police scares the shit out of them. And they're just mm -hmm. not willing as mortified as they are of, of this present iteration of the Republican Party, they're not quite sure that they're ready to call themselves Democrats yet. So, Tim, you wrote a terrific book on the Republican Party, which Isakoff referenced before, that in a lot of ways has become Trump's party. Trump is about to leave the scene in kind of a literal sense, we think anyway, but I don't think anyone thinks that he is not going to continue to be a looming presence over the body politic and retain, if not a vice-like grip over the Republican Party, a lot of influence. 72 million people voted for him. And we could see Republicans, including the Republican leadership, not wanting to separate themselves from him very much at all. So what is going to happen over the next uh, few months and years in the Republican Party? How much influence will Trump retain? And what are the implications of that? So 
I got to say, guys, this has been the really interesting thing in the conversations I've been having with senior Republicans recently. If you are a Republican who, and most of them feel this way, not all of them, but most of them, if you are a Republican who can't wait to turn the page on Trumpism and who are, who are really looking forward to a sort of a clean break from him one way or another, then this outcome actually is the worst case scenario, right? If Trump had lost in lopsided blowout fashion and uh, you know Biden pushes 350 plus electoral votes and wins the popular vote by 10 or 12 million and it's a, just a bloodbath at the ballot box and Republicans get whooped down ballot as well, then I think a lot of Republicans would finally sort of find their voice and come out and say, okay, you know what? We've ridden the roller coaster here, enough is enough. It's time to get off, time to move on. Alternatively, had Trump won, then at the very least, you've got an expiration date on the guy's presidency, right? You know that four years from now, you're rid of him and that uh, the, the, the building for the post-Trump Republican Party can really begin in earnest. Now, it's completely paralyzed because he's lost so narrowly and he's already begun to give the indication that he's going to run again. And we all know that Donald Trump being Donald Trump, even if he doesn't run again, he's going to spend the next three and a half years teasing that he's going to run again keeping us in reality television style suspense. And so what that essentially does is it paralyzes the rest of the Republican Party that has been sort of looking for this moment to have that break or, or at least begin to sort of plan for the break. You know, Nikki Haley and, and Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and all of these younger Republicans who have who had sort of viewed November 4th as the starting gun for the 2024 election, win, lose, or draw, suddenly uh, Trump, by virtue, not just of losing so narrowly, guys, but by virtue of convincing tens of millions of Republicans that this election was stolen from him and that it's not legitimate and that he got cheated, I, I would say that there's a real chance, however insane this might have seemed just a few weeks ago, I think there's a real chance that he leaves office on January 20th with more support in the Republican Party than he's ever had before. And that's just something we didn't think was possible. That is uh, pretty uh, astonishing if it's uh, if it's true. But you mentioned some of the names. There are others. Uh, Tom Cotton leaps to mind. Who is best poised to inherit the mantle of Trumpism and who might try to tack to broaden it to be the sort of alternative to the Trump successor, whether it's Look, Trump himself may run or somebody will run as the Trumpist candidate, but then there's got to be others who might try to tack a little away from that. Yeah. So to the first question, the mantle of Trumpism is going to be an interesting one for anybody to try and pick up because to my point earlier, so much of this is about emotion. And and I, look, I don't dispute that there's some policy dimension to Trump's appeal and uh, specifically, you know, trade deals that screwed the working man in the Midwest. I mean, I grew up around a lot of that, I get it. But at the end of the day, so much of Trumpism and, and Trump's appeal is rooted in his sort of visceral gut instinct to inflame and to exploit anger and resentment and grievance and like and it's a real i mean it's a people might not want to hear this but it's a real skill like you can't like you can't just you can't just learn how to do that like you you either have it or you don't and so can anybody on the republican side sort of naturally pick up where trump leaves off Maybe like, you know, Don Jr. is certainly sort of uh, attempting to position himself that way. You know, Matt Gates. You don't take that seriously, though, do you? You know, I I don't know if we have a choice but to take it seriously, right? Like, you know, at this point, 
again, if, if we've learned anything from these scarring last few years, isn't it that we shouldn't discount anything? Yeah, I, I was going to say, Isakov, <laughs> okay. I think four years ago, you might have said the same thing about, or five years ago, about yeah, Donald Trump, about Donald yeah, Trump yeah, Sr. Fair enough. Yeah, so, you know, and you look, you've got, I mean, look at Congress right now, guys. Look at, you know, you've Matt Gates, the cartoon character from Florida, you know, this, like this guy, He's a player in the Republican Party. A, you know, actually, I want, I want to pick up on that because I think in some, you know, a lot of people have asked the question, can Trumpism or made the point that, you know, Trumpism will survive Trump. But I think you're pointing to something um, that actually gets a little bit less discussion, which is, is there Trumpism without Donald Trump for all the reasons you, you, know, you said? And you mentioned Matt Gates. You know, he is an interesting character because he does channel the same kind of, you know, sort of outrage. And, and I, I don't know if he has the same kind of ability to create the, the circus that Donald Trump does. But the people who are mostly talked about as Trump's successors, as inheriting his mantle, are very different personalities. Yes. I mean, Josh Hawley, who I think is a Yale law school graduate and, you know, kind of an intellectual, Tom Cotton, Harvard educated. And, and stiff as a board. And, and right. And so. Yeah, but none uh, of them have that kind of visceral appeal. But that's that my Trump point. Yeah, right, that's yeah. exactly that's exactly my point. So, you know, I think of them as kind of Trump light. And I wonder, does that give an opening to a different kind of Republican populist, either more extreme like a Gates, or perhaps someone who kind of charts his or her own course, who isn't trying to be Donald Trump, but m might appeal to the same constituencies. I don't know who that would be. So look, guys, I, we, we might have had a similar conversation when I came on after I wrote the book. But this for me is the $64,000 question. It's can a very gifted Republican figure out how to fuse the sort of Trump populism and nationalism to a healthy extent, not the nativism and racism, but the nationalism, the economic nationalism, the uh, sort of rally around the flag and, and rejection of uh, sort of the, the uh, idea that unfettered free trade and that all of our products being made overseas is good for us on a macro sense. Like, can somebody tap into what Trump was really smart in identifying that so much of the Republican Party had ignored for decades was this sort of festering discontent and anger with the governing class for ignoring them. Can somebody both tap into that while also sort of broadening the party out and making clear that this is not a party that's pissed off and then it's not a party that doesn't like black and brown people and a party that rejects science and a party uh, that sort of wants to use every cultural wedge as an opportunity for partisan advancement. That's, it sounds really easy, but it's going to be so hard to do. And, and like, that's the, you know, if you're Nikki Haley, that's what you're trying to figure out. Can you figure out how to thread that needle, capture and harness that same populist energy, recognizing that there are a lot of people who are legitimately pissed off and who deserve to be pissed off because their wages haven't gone up in 20 years and they feel like the government and, and both parties have left them behind. Can you do that without these naked appeals to racism and, and everything else? And can it work? Right. Like, will voters buy into it? I, I just don't know if they will, but that's the play. Is there a non-Trumpist, more establishment, Bush-like figure out there who can run as well? I mean, if they can, I, you know. Or are they just gone? 
It, I, I have a hard time seeing it, guys. I, I got to tell you, and look, you know, to answer the question directly, sure, like Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, uh, I, I think could very well run for president, and he's in that mold. Uh, there are a couple of others, but guys, again, I, I just want to emphasize this. I left D.C. after living there for 12 years. I wanted to come home, and I wanted to cover this campaign from the ground and, and be in the Midwest, and I have spent every day talking with Trump voters for the last 14 months, and the party of Reagan, the party of H.W. Bush, it's dead. It's not, it's not there anymore. Like, it just doesn't exist. And could it be resurrected one day? Sure. Politics is cyclical. And I think, you know, maybe decades from now, after lots of evolution in the party and, and changes in the country, it could, that, that sort of country club, Wall Street fusion party could reemerge. But right now, for the foreseeable future, this is a Walmart party. It is, it is not a chamber of commerce party. And anybody who wants to get a foothold in a primary is going to have to start by sort of appealing to that base of voters that, that, that Trump has so energized. Uh, any attempt to go around them and reach the elites in the party is just going to go nowhere. Let me go back to the Democrats for a second. If you look not five years into the future, but 10, 15 years into the future, do you see any possibility that the Democratic Party, with, with the demographic changes that it is going through, unifies around a much more progressive message and that a whether it's AOC or someone else becomes the kind of Reagan of the Democratic Party and that a progressive ideas are kind of in the ascendancy in, in America, the way that conservative ideas were in, you know, back in, in the, you know, probably when Jimmy Carter was still president and that rising tide of conservatism was happening. Can you see that happening on the other side? You know, I, I can to an extent, uh, Daniel. What's tricky is that sort of ascendancy for it to really take off. It has to meet a moment, right? It has to, it has to be sort of, I think it has to fit a societal demand. So I spent a lot of the Democratic primary in 2020 not super hung up on universal health care, although I think that that's certainly on the ascendancy and is going to continue to gain traction, and not really hung up on the Green New Deal or defund police, things like that. I spent a lot of time reporting on uh, Andrew Yang and universal basic income. Like, I think that that is an idea that is absolutely going to continue to gain steam as the manufacturing sector in this country gets hollowed out over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, and um, as automation displaces millions and millions of American workers, I look, I mean, we're start, we've seen a glimpse of it here in the pandemic, right? People who are suddenly out of work and looking to the government for assistance and you know, they get one big check, but then they go, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months without getting another one. What do they do? And there's a lot of panic, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. I do think that if Democrats want to be both progressive and populist, that is an idea that's sort of in the sweet spot to, to sort of try and address, you know, systemic inequality and also try to address a uh, sort of some longer term structural economic issues uh, as, as far as, you know, the health of the overall economy. Like how, how can people keep businesses afloat when we've got, you know, 18% unemployment, right? So like ideas like that, and I do think to a lesser extent, but it's still very much in play, is single payer healthcare. Like I do not discount the possibility that within 15, 20 years, we could be on the brink of, of having a single payer healthcare system. Because I think when you, to my point earlier about like the blind litmus test, when you talk to very conservative voters in very conservative parts of this country, 
they will give you chapter and verse on how screwed up our healthcare system is and how they're, they've gotten to the point where they don't, they don't care. Just have somebody, have the government figure it out, have the government fix it. I was so struck this year, guys, in traveling around talking with different Republican congressional candidates, nobody even mentions repealing Obamacare anymore. It doesn't come up because they've all recognized how popular it is with their constituents. Medicaid expansion has passed in some of the reddest states in the country. And that's telling us something. So I think the trajectory there is also very clear uh, in the progressives' favor. You know, we talked about the Republican positioning for 2024, but um, there could also be a contest on the Democratic side for 2024. Now, clearly, Harris would have the, you know, would be uh, the mantle for the Biden administration, and she'll be positioning herself. But do you see uh, potential challengers to her and from the moderate side, from the progressive side? So I, I do. I just don't know which side it's going to come from. But I do, guys. I, anybody who covered this campaign closely can attest to this, of what I'm about to say. Kamala Harris does not strike fear into the hearts of, of, of potential rivals. Uh, she just doesn't. Uh, I, she's a perfectly adequate politician. And she has moments where she's a very good politician. But she's not Barack Obama. She's not a world beater. She's just not somebody who is going to clear the field automatically. Now, if the Biden administration figures out a way to really thread a needle and pass some significant policies and, and really get a lot done, I think that's going to make it much harder for somebody who wants to challenge her. But if we have a lot of rocky road ahead of us over the next four years, which I suspect we will, and if Democrats lose the House in 2022, which I kind of suspect they will at this early stage because the structural advantages are just all going to be working against them, then it, you know, I don't know that Kamala Harris has this overwhelming inside track. I, I, think, it's, I think there's going to be a real challenge for her. And, and look, this gets back to the very first question you guys asked about kind of the incipient democratic civil war. I've been saying this for months, and a lot of people want to punch me when they hear me say it, but it's just how I feel. I think if you stuck a needle of truth serum in Joe Biden's arm and asked him whether he would prefer a you know, one-vote Democratic Senate majority or a two-vote Republican Senate uh, majority, I think he'd tell you that he actually might rather have a Republican Senate majority for this one reason. Because if you're Joe Biden and you are a battered institutionalist who fears for this country's future, and you believe it is your role and your mandate in this job, more than passing any single policy achievement, it is your mandate to lower the temperature, to restore some functionality to Washington, to try to get these parties working together a little bit again, and to do some things to tangibly improve the lives of Americans, like Slotkin was talking about in the article. If that's your view, and it is Biden's view, trust me, I've had this conversation with him. If that's your view, then you might not mind having that plausible deniability with Mitch McConnell controlling the Senate so that you can tell the left flank of your party, guys, look, my hands are tied here. I'd love to go over the falls with you and sort of go for broke on some of these big objectives. But knowing what we know and knowing that Mitch has the votes to block us, I think we need to be working on the, on the incremental things that we can do to, to uh, improve Americans' lives on a bipartisan basis and, and restore some normalcy to government. And if he can do that, and I don't know that he can, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of ifs in that sentence, but if he can do that, then maybe that has a real significant effect on rebranding and reshaping the party to the to, to what Slotkin was talking about. But it's it's a it sounds a little bit like Bill Clinton after he lost the House in 1994. 
incremental small policies that yes. could get bipartisan support. School uniforms, midnight yep. basketball, <laughs> all in our future again. Yeah. <laughs> except he except Clinton was not dealing with this ascendant, well-funded left wing. True. That, that had that had a social media platform. I mean, this is the biggest guys. Like, I was just having this conversation with somebody this morning. You know, John Boehner once told me, I said, what's the biggest change uh, in the country between the time you got into politics and, by the time, and, and the time you left? And he said, not even close. The biggest change is that none of us are working from a common baseline of information anymore. And that the people who used to have to funnel their thoughts through a newspaper interview or through a talk radio interview or an op-ed page, they now have a platform to reach tens of millions of people at a moment's notice. And, and you just can't measure how that changes you know, politics and public policy. And so that's what Biden's going to have to deal with that obviously Clinton never did. Speaking of who's going to control the Senate, how do you see the Georgia runoffs uh, playing out? So, you know, my sense of this, guys, was that whoever, if we found ourselves in this position, that uh, whichever party won the presidency would be at a disadvantage in the runoff, even if that's a little bit counterintuitive. But it, it seemed to me that yeah, there's usually a bit of a backlash against yeah. whoever won the president. Exactly. Whichever party won the presidency. That's yeah. exactly. Yeah, there's some backlash and there's some complacency, right? That like if if you just if you just got your guy elected into the White House, you kind of, you know, rest on your laurels a little bit and you might not be as galvanized to get right back out and vote six weeks later, uh, you know, seven weeks later. That's the sort of gut sense I have is that Georgia is now very definitely a purple state and that it's gonna be competitive. But I think Republicans you know, the people taking to the streets in Georgia right now are Republicans uh, who are angry about, you know, the election being stolen and about all this, you know, the counting shenanigans, the perceived shenanigans, which of course is not real. But like, th those are the people who are really fired up right now. And I think Democrats are going to struggle to match that enthusiasm. Well, yeah. And Mitch McConnell understands that. And as part of the reason he has been giving Donald Trump a lot of running room yes. uh, for his frivolous, frivolous lawsuits. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so. That's exactly right. So right now you you would give the uh, Republicans an advantage. I'd give them yeah I'd give them the, the edge and uh, and I obviously because you have these two races that are going to be on the same ticket. I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of voters coming out and voting for the Republican nominee in one race and the Democratic nominee in the in the other race. I think that's very unlikely. So I think that this is an all or nothing deal. And if you had a gun to my head and said, do you expect you know two Republican wins or two Democratic wins? I think my money and most of the smart money from people uh, who I know who are, are involved in this believe that the Republicans will win both. Well, if if that's the case and the Republicans continue to pick up these gains in the House in these remaining races, it's going to be, Biden is going to be very restricted in what he's going to be able to do. Yes, he is. But again, guys, I you know, so I'll tell you a very quick story, not to put you to sleep with this, but I remember having this conversation with Biden right after he left office as vice president. And we were uh, sort of going down rabbit holes and he was kind of freewheeling. And, I, and he was, we were talking about institutional decline in the country. And he told me this story that really stuck with me. He, he told me how around year five or so of the Obama presidency that he went over to the Senate to have lunch with a couple of senators. And he hadn't been over there for a while. And there was some construction underway. And he realized that the senator's only dining room had been torn apart and that it was being uh, permanently changed into something else because senators weren't really using it anymore. 
And he explained to me how, you know, there's a senator's cafe where staff is allowed and family members and guests are allowed. But the senator's dining room was for senators only. And that for decades, there's just a little buffet line in there. And that for decades, Republicans and Democrats would come in there, they'd go down the buffet line, they would get their meals, and they would sit down for hours, and they would talk about their families, and they'd talk about sports, and they would just bond and, and develop friendships with one another. And he, you know, he, he acknowledged to me, he said, look, I know this might sound corny or, or cheesy or, or Pollyannish to people listening to it now, but I'm telling you, that really mattered. And like, to see that room go away, it broke his heart. And he felt like it was symbolic of this sort of uh, deconstruction of those mediating norms that we had in, in politics. So if you're Biden, and you're stepping into this situation with a bare bones Democratic House majority and with a slim Republican Senate majority, and all the odds are against you for getting anything big done, maybe that's exactly the right circumstance for you to try and do what you say you want to do, which is restore the soul of the country, heal the country, try and get things back to some sense of normal. I don't think it's going to be easy. Matter of fact, I think it's going to be damn near impossible. But I do think that in a strange, almost backward way, these circumstances are like really quite conducive to that environment for him to step into and say, listen, neither of us have some huge sweeping mandate here. It's time for us to lay down our swords and try and get some small things done. I can see uh, progressives listening to this and going a little batshit crazy <laughs> at, little. Uh, at the <laughs> prospect of, uh, of what you're talking about. Well, anyway, uh, Tim, great piece on Slocken, great discussion. And um we want to uh, continue to talk to you as uh, as this weird political situation unfolds. Yeah, I'm happy to do it, guys. Thanks for having me back.